It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Today's guest, Jessica, and I have been talking about a lot of different elements of children. And I've mentioned before that I don't have children, but I'm very passionate about children. I grew up babysitting. That was actually my first line of work and was around a lot of different types of kids, parenting styles, situations. And now as an adult, I see my friends and family members having kids and hear stories about what it's like to raise them and the challenges that come up. I think parenting, there's no way around challenges, I'm assuming, Jessica. Again, I can't speak from personal experience. I don't think there's such thing as being a perfect parent, doing it right all the time. That's that's the nature of it in theory, but that doesn't mean that it isn't really challenging. And one thing I really I'm looking forward to discussing with you is the and side of parenting where it's it's about taking care of children and yourself as a parent acknowledging the roles in which a parent needs to work through and understand themselves in order to understand their children even saying that line Jessica I think one place I can start is that I feel like I have done so much work on myself as a human being. And sometimes I wish my parents would do more work on themselves, to be frank. <laughs> I wonder, what would it be like if my parents also went to therapy? <laughs> you know, What would it be like if it wasn't so much about that dynamic of them being the authority figure? That was essentially what I grew up with. When to this day, I go through challenging times with my parents I think our dynamic is very much about what I need to do versus like what we need to do together. And perhaps that's why this resonates with me so much. I think this is a great place to dive in. First, thank you for having me on your show. I'm excited to just have a conversation about this and about this this little word that can mean so much. When you first started saying it's an important topic to you when you were younger, I thought you were going to say you were a child because we all were, right? (laughs) We all were children. And yet somehow as adults, I think it's hard for us to remember what it felt like or maybe even what we needed or didn't realize we needed. And I think that's maybe part of what you're alluding to in doing your own work as an adult. That if we, if any adult, but especially if we as parents aren't paying attention to our own patterns, we have a tendency to repeat them. And I, th- I think sometimes that can go well. And sometimes we can end up repeating things that we don't really want to. Yeah, that repeating the patterns. I mean, again, since I don't have experience as a parent, I, I think I default to my experience like as the child and <laughs> even as an adult feeling like I'm the child of my parents. I'm fortunate that they're still alive. But 
I certainly feel like that dynamic is still in place. And that gives a lot of perspective because I suppose as long as a parent is alive and their children are alive, that dynamic is going to continue. It will evolve. Your relationship together changes as you get older. But there's a lot of things that still feel very familiar and similar to, in my experience at least, to what they were like when I was a kid. (laughs) And through therapy, something that has come up a lot is thinking back to how I was parenting and what my experience was like as a kid. And And that's a great reminder too that parents have this big responsibility because they probably have one of the biggest impacts on a child's mental health. There are two things coming to mind as you were talking. One is for parents listening right now, I want to just say, take a breath. It's okay. You're not doing everything wrong. We're good. This isn't like a blame the parents sort of conversation. (laughs) We're going to like hang with us. (laughs) You're not doing everything wrong. I think there's so much out there right now on social media or in the news that's clickbait about three ways you're destroying your relationship with your child or five things you should never say again or whatever. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like we are focusing on the wrong things here. The second piece is I learned, I guess, five or 10 years ago about, I really started digging into the brain science behind parenting as well as just how brains develop, how we as humans develop. And you spoke to how important that parent-child relationship is in our development. So that can feel like a lot of pressure. (laughs) And I felt like parents don't always have the kind of support they need, especially if they're trying to break cycles, if they're trying to walk a different path. And I feel like that's where my work has evolved in the last five years or so is really to empower the cycle breakers, the change makers, like people who want to do something different. And it's happening in a little bit of a weird way because I feel like some of the magic sauce is in this weird space of brain science that somehow learning and understanding how we're wired, what impacts the brain and development, that that can really change not just behavior, but change relationships, change our emotions. Like it just can change so many things for the better. And so specifically in the parent-child relationship, I think like you were saying, a lot of us were sort of raised with the parent as the boss, period. Like parent has the role as the boss. That is the main role, the most important role, and you will respect that role. What I see from a brain perspective is we actually have three pretty distinct roles as parents and boss is one of them, but it's not actually the first role. So the very first role and the biggest and potentially most lasting role for a parent is as first comforter. Like the first thing, if you think about a newborn baby, you're not bossing that baby around. You are meeting needs, you are soothing, you are comforting in every which way you can possibly figure out. You're bouncing, banging, you're driving for 12 hours just to try to get this baby to go to sleep, right? Like you're doing all of the things to comfort. And if you think about it, ideally that role lasts forever. Whitney, when you were talking about like what you wish maybe you could come to your parents with 
in different times of your life right now, like you don't need them to boss you. That era has passed. (laughs) That door has closed. But wouldn't it be nice if there were some times when things were really tough? Not that they should be your only comfort, but that you could still turn to them to say, hey, this is hard. And they could say, yeah, it makes sense that that's hard. I got you, boo. It's comforting to hear you talk about comfort in that way. (laughs) You know, everybody has different dynamics with their parents. I think the reason it feels important in this moment to to speak about that is not just to offer my own experience, but to share how long-lasting that parent dynamic is. And also the teacher, the school environment plays a big role in how children feel. And I spoke to a recent guest, Dr. P., Dr. Tracy, and we talked a lot about the school system and the after-school program she runs. And I'm really curious to hear from you, Jessica, about the role of school. And you had mentioned to me before we started recording the dynamic between parents and teachers and the responsibilities, the roles that each have, how they can work together instead of just saying, my kid's in school now, they're out of my hands, or I don't need to think about them until they come back and hopefully nothing bad happened at school. So what is that dynamic between parent and teacher and teacher and kid alone without the parents involved? There's so much to unpack there. I feel like it comes back to this theme of and, that there are layers upon layers of what's going on for each individual along with what's going on in the relationship. So if we're thinking about kid and teacher, there's certainly the student-teacher dynamic where this kid is there hopefully to learn, but we know that there are some things that impact our availability to learn. And then there's also, because kids are not just little adults, they're still humans under construction, (laughs) that there's also an element of teachers play a role in building students' brains, not just from an academic perspective, but from a social and emotional perspective. And I think similar to the caveat that I gave to parents listening, teachers listening, take a breath, hang with me. It can feel like a lot of pressure. Part of what I love about my work is that these things that we tend to avoid, like acknowledging that there's this pressure there or acknowledging that we impact each other and that my stress has an effect on you and vice versa, that if we just don't say anything, that doesn't actually make the thing go away. But what if we could approach it and still have hope? And it doesn't have to be so big and scary. And so that is really my hope, not just in our conversation, Whitney, but in general, in the resources that I create, in the the way I interact online, that there's a lot that we have to hold as parents, as teachers. And that might feel especially heavy If you haven't always gotten what you needed, even if your parents did everything they knew how to do. So one of the things I think about, and I think Chaz Lewis talks about this really well, Mr. Chaz online talks about, we can honor and recognize that maybe our parents broke a few cycles themselves, even if they didn't give us exactly what we needed because of how we're wired or all of the experiences that we had or our goodness of fit together or in the world of foster care and adoption, the loss and grief that your child might be experiencing that is a big thing for you to help hold with them, right? Like there's all of these possibilities, 
But within that, we can hold compassion that we can hold both, that maybe I didn't get what I needed. And I know my parents did the best that they could with the tools and skills and experiences they had, the time that they were raised in. It doesn't excuse things. It doesn't diminish your experience. It lets us hold this complexity and move through in a way where we don't have to just blame or feel shame, like blame the parents or feel shame about our experience of how we were parented or whatever the thing is. I think that's the tension that we tend to run from. And I want to encourage us to embrace it and find our way through because that's where relationships get better. That really resonates. And I'm glad you said that because I certainly don't mean to speak critically about my parents. It is an acknowledgement the and there. Like I do know that they did. My parents did so many great things. I'm so grateful for them. We have a wonderful relationship and I can acknowledge that there's a lot of opportunity for growth and there probably always will be. And that led me to another question in my head, Jessica, which is, it seems like there was really, I don't even know how to find the words because as soon as the words came up, I'm like, well, this sounds really obvious. Like there's no perfect parent. There's no ideal way. There's no right way. And with that, there also means that, well, actually, I want to know what you think about this. Is there a wrong way to parent? (laughs) If there's no right way, perfect way to parent, does that mean that there's no wrong way to parent or to be a teacher even? Like since we're incorporating all the different influences in a child's life, aside from abuse and assaults, certainly that's a different story. Yes, I appreciate that caveat because certainly there are wrong things to do to a child. So I agree with you that there's no one right way to parent. And I have a hard time with influencers, people out there who say, say this one thing and your child will magically do X, Y, and Z. Like it just doesn't work like that for every child, for every relationship, for every culture. There's no universal way. So we all bring our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses into parenting or teaching I don't want to say there's a wrong way to parent, but I would say there are harmful ways to parent. And sometimes we use the, well, kids are resilient sort of fallback. And I think that puts a lot on our kids. That said, I think the pendulum can swing the other way. And we don't teach the kids the skills they need to feel and deal and to solve problems. And we're seeing some of that in, I know I saw that some in my counseling practice. I hear that from other therapists, other employers who are finding the young adult population not always having the same go get it, figure it out sort of drive that employees had maybe 20 years ago, right out of high school or college. And so I do think the pendulum can swing too far in either direction where we're just pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do as I say, not as I do. Hard line, I am the authority can swing all the way to, well, I don't want you to feel any discomfort or gosh, if you're anxious about that, then don't do it. Find your bliss. Well, adulthood isn't always bliss. Like (laughs) we have to do our laundry and we have to go grocery shopping and we have to have jobs to pay bills. And it's not always 
going to be your very favorite thing or, you know, not everybody gets to be a YouTube influencer. (laughs) So I think we do kids a disservice if we swing all the way to not feeling and dealing. So I guess those are two ways that I think we can do some harm in our parenting. If we do everything for our kids and never let them feel discomfort or if all they see is anger and rigidity and their feelings don't have a place, I think that does some harm. Is it wrong? I don't know. Maybe I just don't like that word. <laughs> I don't like that word either. It's an interesting thing. And I think it gives us an opportunity to really reflect on it because we can see life through a very binary lens of this or that taking sides, taking stances, and fall into that black and white thinking. And that can lead to a lot of judgment. Like I'm doing a better job than this person that's self-righteous. That can also lead to a feeling of shame and guilt and lack of worthiness and not enoughness and feeling like, wow, that person's doing such a better job than me. But I see both things coming up. And the way people talk about themselves and others, it's a combination. It seems to mostly be that this or that versus the and, as we've been talking about, it just seems to be harmful. And I really appreciate your approach to the gray areas. (laughs) As you were speaking, another thing came up last night. I was driving through this area of Los Angeles, has a lot of really nice homes and seems like a very nice wealthy area. And there are these boys walking down the street. It was probably like 7.30. And it was like a group of boys walking down the street. And I was just observing them and the way they were walking. So interesting as an adult. Like I can remember what it was like to be that age and then also feel like, what are these boys up to? Like, why are they out, you know, at this time walking around the streets? Not like it was dangerous. I was just kind of curious about them and felt a little bit of a trigger. And I started thinking about what you mentioned about being an influencer and noticing how so many young kids are influenced by social media, whether simply modeling their behavior off of what they see on social media which to me, I think part of my reaction to these boys last night, they weren't even doing anything. It was just something about them and what I was projecting onto them, which was like, they felt almost so grown up. I don't know how old they were, but I would guess maybe like 13. And yet there's something about them that felt like they were moving their bodies and dressing in a much more mature way. And I feel like I've noticed that so much with social media's influence. A lot of people around my age will say things like, wow, when I was that age, like I was so innocent. Like I was wearing these really childish clothing and now kids, preteens are dressing like they're 18. And is that social media that's influenced it? Or does every adult think that kids (laughs) are more mature than they should be? Like you're a parent, so I'm sure you witness this with your own. You have three sons, is that right? I have three sons. So my partner and I have joked, he in particular has joked, my husband, about he did not feel equipped to raise daughters. So there are ways that we are fortunate that we have boys because he would have had some big feelings about navigating adolescence with girls. So maybe that was just got saved from that whole little whatever that would have been between him and his girls. 
I don't know. Part of my like logical side of my brain wants to see the data because I think you're right in a way that we see this in school a lot where everybody thinks that this is the worst it's ever been. The behavior is the worst it's ever been. And then you'll hear something from 50 years ago and they're saying the same kind of thing. Well, kids are out of control and this and that and the other thing is happening. So I do think there's some like negativity bias that we notice those things. And I also feel like an old woman sometimes when I'm like, geez, like I'm clutching my pearls or something about how someone's dressing. (laughs) Like, don't people know that some people want the bottom half of their shirts? Like you go to clothing stores and everything's crop tops. I'm like, can I just have a whole shirt? No, that's not an option anymore. Okay. I'm old. I don't know. But I do think one of the impacts of the internet in general and social media in particular is the potential for exposure to sometimes to good things, but largely to the loud voices and the things that grab your downstairs brain's attention, the things that you feel like you're missing out on. If you see a post about two friends going out and having a good time, maybe you feel happy for your two friends, or maybe you feel a little bit left out that you weren't part of the two friends going out and having a good time, even if you weren't available, or right? Like there can be these layers of things, but our brains pay attention to the negative. They pay attention to the threat, like the possibility of threat. And sometimes that threat is, well, being left out is an enormous threat for humans. We don't survive if we are not part of the pack. And so you see that with gangs, you see that with all kinds of, there's a variety of ways that that can be manipulated for harm. And I think we see that sometimes in social media, the TikTok challenges to do horrible things, these things where kids can get caught up in dangerous behavior or trying to be something that they think they're supposed to be, to be able to fit in. That's always been a thing for adolescents because that's a time that we're connecting with peers and figuring out our identity and pulling away from our boss parents and shifting more into those other roles eventually with our parents. But I do think, I know I'm a little bit against the general norm here, but as many, many, well, like the the American Academy of Pediatrics and others say, like, wait as long as you can. My kids are not on social media. They are 14 and 12 and nine. And we talk a lot about I have to use, I have to, I feel like I have to use social media for work because I am an author, because I am a public figure that my publishers, people who are hiring me to speak, they want to see some of my presence online, but my kids know that that's why I'm there. They also know that even though I feel like a person with really good self-control, good supports in my life, reasonably good self-esteem that I have to set time limits on my phone for social media usage because it is designed to suck you in. It is designed to manipulate your emotions. It is designed to make you want more, 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 to check for likes, to activate your brain in ways that make you come back again and again and again, looking for something. And I think for the teenage brain certainly for younger than teenager, but even for the teenage brain, 
it does not have the capacity to navigate that in the ways that that we would want for our kids. Like we're setting them up for, I don't even know what the right word is. It makes me sad. I guess that's the feeling I have is I know it's how so many kids connect and <laughs> I know it's not the truest form of connection. And so I wrestle with that as a parent, as a human. Yeah. Absolutely. I feel the same way. I mean, that's why one of the big motivations for me stepping away from social media is I want true connection. I would rather spend two hours recording with a podcast guest like yourself and feel a sense of connection and depth than talk to a hundred people in that two hour time period or see a hundred different social media posts. That doesn't feel like the depth of connection that I want. And some people compare social media to smoking because we don't really know the danger yet. It's still new. It's very common. But what will it be like 10 years from now? Will we look back and say, oh, wow, it did a lot of damage. What did it do to the young brains? And something else in my research around social media that aligns with a focus of your work, especially in your books, is anger. And it's been proven through research that the social media algorithms favor anger, divisiveness, extremes, anything that will agitate us because that actually gets us hooked. That taps into our desire to engage. We want to fight and defend and stand up for things we believe in. It brings out all of these deep emotions as well as old behaviors. Probably even the survival mechanism is tied into that. So a lot of us are being trained to be angry because our anger ends up getting more attention. And I'm curious in your work and research, tell me more about anger with kids and why that's the subject of so much of your work. Yeah, that's a great question and a good thing to pull out because anger is a protective emotion. So anger comes in to say, there's something up here. There's something wrong. The difficult part is it's not very good at distinguishing what's wrong, like what the actual problem is. And so I think that's what the 24-hour news cycle, social media, like that can all manipulate that and sort of use it to just agitate and drive behavior, clicking or whatever, tuning in, not missing out kind of behavior. Anger is also a really primal emotion that can protect us from other, maybe more vulnerable feelings. So anger often comes out when we feel left out or when we feel like our beliefs are being challenged or when we are stressed or when maybe something happens that makes us feel like we're not doing a good enough job or that we're being misunderstood, right? Like all of those things can fuel anger, but often there's grief or there's disappointment or there's fear or there's loneliness even, we're maybe driven to connect through anger when the real need is some human connection with some joy or with a shared passion as opposed to just being against something. I think it's easy to jump into being against something, but being for something can be so much more empowering, even if it feels harder at first. I lost the thread a little bit of your original question, but I think part of why I end up talking about anger a lot is because 
it's so primal, it's so prevalent, and it can be so divisive, and it's often misunderstood. So I think our anger doesn't always mean what we think it means. I think that's especially true for kids, but it's still true for us as adults as well. For kids, man, they don't have a lot of ways to tell us how they feel. So there's a quote that I've seen around, and I forget who the quote is from, but something along the lines of, kids don't say I had a hard day. Do you want to, can I talk about it? They say, will you play with me? Sometimes, but most often what I see is kids don't say I had a hard day. Can we talk about it? They throw a tantrum or they hit their brother or they sass you. They act out in some way that's saying I'm struggling. And if we just get into managing the anger We're not actually addressing what's underneath, like what's going on that every day when you get home, you are coming in like a raging tiger. And I'm, can that trigger concern in us as parents or as after school providers or as teachers or school counselors or whatever? Can we sort of rewire ourselves that when we see anger, we activate our compassion and check in with, what is driving this primal response? Because I mean, almost every single time, especially when we're talking about kids and teenagers, it's something that will, if you really knew what was going on, you would have compassion. It's hard for us to always get to what's really going on. But I think even the kids that struggle because they just don't have the skills yet, Almost always, they're not trying to give you a hard time. They're having a hard time. No one woke up wanting to ruin your day. Doesn't feel like it. It feels like they're out to get you. Man, that's just not the case. This feels so important on so many levels. I mean, again, this is not just about kids. Like we can see this in so many of our interactions as adults with each other, with other adults, with kids. I mean, even in moments where I'm meeting a child or or around a child that I have no connection to as a stranger, I still find myself trying to be more curious versus judgmental. Like most of us can relate to the feeling of a crying child on the airplane. You know, (laughs) it's really triggering for a lot of people, unless you've been there yourself, I imagine is easier to have compassion for someone like me who's never had kids. When there's a screaming child, it's really easy to start to judge the parents. And I think it is a primal reaction. Like when someone is upset around us, it might upset us too. And maybe we get triggered, we get frustrated. But having that compassion or empathy and really trying to check ourselves like, okay, why am I so triggered by this? Do I want to put the blame on someone else? Or can I take do some work <laughs> within myself to figure out how to react to it so that I don't make it worse? for myself or them. I kind of like that you brought up the crying child because I think, so a lot of times when I'm presenting, as I talk about the brain, I talk about the Dan Siegel and Tina Bryson in their book, The Whole Brain Child, they introduce this upstairs, downstairs brain concept that you'll, that you'll hear me talk about. And when I talk about the downstairs brain, so the home of primal survival, like all the things that keep us alive, as well as those big feelings I will show a picture of a a newborn baby crying. If you're not watching the video, Whitney just smiled when I said a newborn baby crying 
because babies in distress can trigger our compassion in a different way often than a two-year-old who's throwing a fit or a five-year-old or a (laughs) 35-year-old that's throwing a fit. But from a brain perspective, it's a very similar phenomenon that's happening where that downstairs brain has taken over and it doesn't know if its needs gonna get met, is going to get met. And so when I think about the crying child on the plane, I agree with you. It's so easy to jump to wanting to blame the parent, especially if they're not doing things the way that you think they should do things. When we hear distress, oftentimes we want to shut it down. So as opposed to coming alongside and trying to help, we want to control. And that same thing comes through in a lot of like anger management or even in parenting situations where we want to control a kid's behavior instead of partnering with them to figure out how they're going to problem solve through getting ready in the morning. Hey, I've noticed we're running like five minutes late every single morning what do you think we can do? Like, how can this go better? Let's think about it together. Not when you're already five minutes late. Don't have that conversation when you're already fuming in the car, trying to get where you need to go. Have it when you've got your upstairs brain back in charge, maybe it's after school or whatever, and make a game plan, write things down together, draw pictures, like test out new ideas. Like what would happen if we woke up this way? Should we set the alarm five minutes or do we need to get to bed 15 minutes earlier? But I think so often when something goes wrong, we jump to power and control because that's what our downstairs brain wants. It wants power and control of the situation instead of how do we figure this out? Well, that's complicated. Figuring things out together is complicated and slow and cumbersome and uncomfortable. And so it's easy to want to jump to that seemingly easy solution, but we're shortchanging our kids in the process. And I think inviting power struggles, like there's just all these things. That said, there are times that the answer is, this is how it needs to go. I understand that you don't understand, but this is how it needs to go. Yep, we're doing it this way. So I think that's part of why I had a little bit of a hard time with the like, is there a wrong way to parent? Because I think there are instances across different cultures, different family situations, different community interactions, different moments, different personalities, where lots of different techniques, skills, ways of being are needed. That feels like such an important thing to acknowledge because context is everything. One of the contexts I know that you explore a lot is trauma. And I'm curious, are you spending more time exploring the trauma that children are experiencing? Is it mostly adults? Is it a mix of the two? Like, how do you address trauma in your work? So I feel like trauma is something that either people are like super curious about or that like sends you running for the hills. Like, enough already. (laughs) I don't want any part of it. So I try to address trauma in a very safe, conversational, approachable way for both adults and kids. So I feel like for a long time in my work, my background's largely in the child welfare space. And I found myself focusing, well, I feel like I learned pretty quickly that if we're not focusing on the adults around the child, we're not helping the child. Yeah, that became clear very quickly. But I think my focus was still, how do I get the adult to do what the adult needs, what this child needs, as opposed to 
how do I help this adult feel safe and seen and valued so that they can show up in ways that this child needs? I don't think that shift has happened perfectly. Certainly there are still times that I jump into like protect the kid mode, but I think that shift has been important in my work because telling people they're doing something wrong is a quick way to send them into their defense brain. And so as I'm doing professional development with schools, I'm not coming in there to say you're doing something wrong. I'm coming in there to say you're acting exactly how your brain is wired to act when it's faced with what it perceives as a threat. And this kid's misbehavior is a threat to you. And so knowing that, what are we going to do? Because the only way this kid's behavior is going to change is if we can see it from a brain-based perspective and understand that there's either, as Ross Green would say, a lagging skill or an unmet need, right? There is something driving this behavior and it's not that they want to destroy your classroom. They did not wake up trying to make your life terrible, even though your brain is reacting as though that were the case. So both things are normal. That this kid, for whatever reason, has adapted to have a very strong defense system. So his tiger comes out really quickly or her chameleon is really good at masking. And when you experience someone else's defense mode, you naturally respond often in defense mode. Except for that crying newborn baby, that's almost the only exclusion But in general, it's really easy for self-protective behavior, for downstairs brain behavior to trigger a downstairs brain reaction. And so I feel like a lot of my work, whether it's trauma related or not, is helping people understand, oh, this is normal. Of course you're responding this way. This big thing is happening and that is impacting your nervous system. And that's not the end of the story. You can be the boss of your brain. And if you are the adult in the room, that kid's survival is dependent on you being the boss of your brain, because that's the only way they learn to be the boss of their brain, right? They need some connection to well-connected brains. (laughs) That's how the human brain grows. I really like the way that you said that. And it's interesting because I feel like we spend so much time talking about emotions, but not really understanding some of the things that our brains are just naturally wired to do, or some of the ways our brains may become dysregulated or are inadvertently we wire it, the neural pathways. I mean, that's a relatively new discovery, right? In brain science, like it wasn't that long ago that researchers discovered that we can rewire our brain pathways. Yes, it is fascinating. And so I think we're still learning this, right? Very much so. Yeah. It is really fascinating. And I think it can be very empowering. And maybe we're still transitioning to recognize that we can change. I think there's still mentality like people never change. They'll always be the same. But now I'm at the belief system that people can change if they're aware, if they are putting in the effort around it, if they know what to do. And I think the same can be true with children. But as adults, it's important for us to recognize the effective way that children can change or to acknowledge the way the behavior 
or how it developed or why it's there like you're doing. It's it's so helpful. And it seems like through the books that you've written and are writing, you're putting out so much work. They are mostly designed for children and parents to learn together through the books. Is that right? Yeah. So that's certainly the case with the Riley the Brave series that I really put them together in a way that a child and their safe big critter, whoever that might be, if it's grandma, if it's auntie, if it's a foster parent, a biological parent, adoptive parent, or a counselor, that the kid is able to put themselves in the story, which activates our brain in a different way than just learning something. And then there's a lot of guidance for both adult and child throughout the series without it being preachy. I can't stand books that sound like adults talking when it's supposed to be for a kid. And then the Magic Backpack series was really designed, especially with the school setting in mind, to help school counselors, teachers, other educators who are supporting kids in learning more about their emotions, learning how to unpack the heavy stuff so that they can be available to learn, as well as just developing those skills for life because we need them. And then my most recent work that has just come out as this podcast is airing is again designed, well, Your Amazing Brain, the Epic Illustrated Guide is for ages seven and up. And again, the adults, (laughs) I've talked to a lot of counselors who've therapists who've read the book and are like, why didn't I learn this in graduate school? I'm like, I know it irritates me too. That's why I write this book. So it's certainly super kid friendly and engaging and interesting and sort of brings the brain science to life and has some little lessons for the adults woven in, in strategic ways. And then what I have poured just thousands of hours into is my latest release, Light Up the Learning Brain, which is for specifically for educators. Because what I was finding is in my private practice work, I would do all this work with families. And then um, we'd get in a much better space with how the kid was functioning and the adults around that kid understanding how they functioned and the kid having some language around it. And then they'd have to go and explain it to the second grade teacher and then the third grade teacher and then the fourth grade teacher. And that's just a big burden for a family that's already struggling. And so I really saw that gap in translating the neuroscience that is hot off the presses into, okay, but what does this mean in my classroom? What does it mean about something as simple as what do my eyebrows look like when I'm trying to talk to a kid about a difficult situation. Because if I'm coming in with my eyebrows up to my hairline, that kid is not hearing a word I'm saying. All they're doing is detecting threat. That's all that's happening. And so they're not problem solving. We're not getting to better behavior because they're just staying in their downstairs brain. So Light Up the Learning Brain has been just a long time coming. It pulls together seven keys for really not just managing behavior, but unlocking that potential in students in ways that I think we weren't taught in college. We weren't taught in school, partly because the science wasn't there and partly because the science hadn't been translated and these systems are slow to shift. I'm so grateful that you're doing this work because it feels so important. It, like you said, it it's still developing, hot up the press and People are either yearning for this information or they don't know 
what they don't know and you're giving them tools that can really change lives in such a profound, if not the most profound ways as we've been talking about today, whether it's a caregiver, the home environment and or the school environment with the educators, this is what shapes us as human beings. And some of these things can have a traumatic impact. They can feel traumatic for us. They can lead to trauma or maybe our trauma isn't even acknowledged because people don't know how to address it with us. And so it just feels incredibly healing that you are putting this out there for people to learn. And also just looking at the designs of your book covers, especially the Riley series and the backpack, like it just brought me joy, you know, just seeing it. It feels interesting and I'm curious about it. And knowing how to draw someone in so that they will start this process is so powerful. I've done a lot over the last year or so to figure out, okay, what do I do? Like, what is my job now? And one of the things I've come to, because I ended up leaving private practice because there just aren't enough hours in a day. And I landed on my roles are I'm an author, I'm a speaker, and I'm an instigator of hope. I think you said we don't know what we don't know. That was me. I was a baby counselor, social worker in the South Bronx, fresh out of grad school, ready to help and not knowing how to, not knowing what I needed to know to be helpful. And so that's really, I feel like with every book that ships out somewhere in the world, that there's this little part of my heart that goes along with it to say like, and may this bring some hope, some peace, some connection that you would feel a little more safe and a little more seen and a little more valued because that's the magic. Like we need each other desperately. And unfortunately, our downstairs brains get very loud and very protective and keep us apart from each other at exactly those moments when we need each other the most. And so that's what the bright colors and the diverse characters and the the sort of gentle and inviting way that I write is really intentional to make sure it can reach that upstairs brain, that whatever protective parts of that kid or that family, that parent, that teacher is there, it's protective for a reason, and (laughs) we can still learn a new way. We can still grow and heal and connect in ways that maybe didn't seem possible before. Well, I've certainly felt so much of that magic, the intention. I felt hope. I felt it the moment I learned about the work that you're doing and even more so after spending this time with you, just your desire to create more peace and connection. I know you're achieving it. I can feel it. I feel it because of how you present and how these books are presented. And it's just such important work. And I'm incredibly grateful for you being here today. And for the listener, if you're feeling some of this magic and curiosity and a desire to learn more about the upstairs and downstairs brains and support people around you, no matter their age, I will link to Jessica's work in two places. One is right here on your podcast player. If you Look at the description. You might have to click a see more button to see it. There'll be a link to Jessica's website with all the books, which are 
continuing to expand. She's doing so much writing. There's also information about speaking. So if you're interested in hearing her speak and bringing her to speak somewhere after today, please check that out. And I would love to see you speak in person, Jessica. I know how powerful it can be putting together a great talk and just being in a room full of people hearing that together sounds really, really wonderful. I also have a blog post written on this episode with the key quotes highlighted. Eventually, the video will be there on YouTube, all in one place at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And all the links, including some of the books that Jessica mentioned today, will be there. We have a whole resource section for you throughout that blog post and at the bottom, along with Jessica's information. Thanks again, Jessica. And thank you to listener for being here with us today and and joining me on this magical, intentional journey. Thanks for having me, Whitney. And thanks to you for spending this time with us. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.